We continue in our walk through the Psalms this summer. We have a couple more weeks of that. And uh, as I said, when we started this summer, that we have picked a couple songs, or I've picked a couple songs, that are some of my favorites. And then we threw in a couple others that were just really good, right? But Psalm 121 is special. And the way I had thought about it this morning as to why I think it's so special for me is, is, is this. And this is, I think, a good illustration. Uh, there's a, a film or a miniseries out there by the title of Band of Brothers. You may have seen it, you may have not have seen it. I don't, it's a pretty thick, heavy war series. It's not for everybody. But it's rightfully titled. It's rightfully titled because here are guys from all over the country in different economic statuses, different faiths, different states of life, and they're thrown into this mix, into this battlefield, into all sorts of different situations. Guys that most normally probably wouldn't be the best of friends are now knit with a bond that is not able to be broken because of the situations and because of the experiences that they had together going through really hard times and also really good times. And they're joined by these experiences. And their friendship is grown and it's strengthened. Now, I don't think I'm an infantryman. I'm probably more like the medic. I don't have a rifle, but I oftentimes have a balm. And I oftentimes have a hand that I can squeeze. And Psalm 121 has been the time in many experiences of my life where someone's needed a balm, where tears have been shed, and sometimes where tears have been cried for joy. But 121 and, my, and, and me are bound together, not just because it's God word, God's Word, but because of the shared experiences that we have. And so my prayer is this morning that it would be something then that's communicated to you, the, the joy and the wonder and the awe that Psalm 121 has for each and every one of us as we go through this thing called the human experience. So please rise as we read God's Word together, Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The reading of God's Word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we give you thanks for this, your Word. Holy Spirit, carry my words to these, your people, gathered here today, whether it's in this building or online, whether it's this morning, a week from now, or a year from now. May these words mold, shape, guide, guard, and protect your people because of your grace, your mercy, and your power. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus, who is our keeper. Amen. You may be seated. I 
I want to try to take us back in time again this morning. I, I think I probably try to do this every now and then of, of trying to even put yourself as a, maybe a movie producer or, or going back in a 1988 DeLorean or something and you've got to hit the flux capacitor and let's go back to Jerusalem, right? Let's go back and pretend that we're there and pretend that we are a pilgrim and that we're a group of pilgrims making our way to Jerusalem for that once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go from Jerusalem and to worship the Lord our God together with a throng of other people just like us. Maybe we've never been to Jerusalem before and we've waited our entire lives to enter into this city. And as we get into the city and we go through the walls, we see the temple. And whether you're a believer or not, it's in that moment that we all begin to realize what drives this city, what drives its economy, what drives its culture, and yes, even what drives its faith. It's the temple. The temple was the center and the hub of of everything for Jerusalem and the time of the Lord's people. And if you were traveling to Jerusalem to go to the temple, it was perhaps, yes, the trip of the lifetime, a truly sight to behold. I remember when when we were moving here, uh, or when we were itinerating, to, to consider whether or not this was the place that we wanted to, to move our family to and to, to minister to you all. We were taken on a tour, right, where we're shown it, and it was a good tour, and I think Stephanie was driving an old Suburban or something like that, and we were driving around, and all of a sudden there was this thing that kind of just stood out in front of everything else, and here was AT&T Stadium, right? You can't miss it. But this is the same, right? It drives our city. It drives our culture. And yes, it probably even drives our faith for many in our city, in our state, right? Football, the Cowboys are a center of our city. But there you find a multitude of people, whether it's at the temple in Jerusalem or even last night at a Cowboys game. There's a multitude of people and they all stand. And you can't help but as you walk closer to AT&T Stadium, if you've ever been there or been in it, it's an, it really is an awe-inspiring thing. In the same sense, many people as they looked at the temple and the temple sat upon a hill and its spires shimmered in the sunshine and you had to walk and wind your way up this hill, up to the temple to be and to experience the temple for all its glory. And then imagine with me that we are with our families and together we're walking up this hill and suddenly the congregation of those around and walking with us up the hill break out into a psalm. And they would sing one of 15 psalms from Psalm 120 all the way up to Psalm 134. And the congregation would break out in what we call one of the psalms of ascents. Psalm 121 is a psalm of ascent that the Lord's people would sing as they made their way up the temple mounts to go and worship the Lord their God. I had a really great experience this week. My in-laws and my son, who are now in Boston for a little bit, said, hey, we have a birthday present for you. We want to fly you out to Boston and we want to have you come see a Red Sox game in Fenway Park, and if you're a sports geek like me who's never been to a place like Fenway, like, yes, come on, let's go. And it was awesome. But whether you're at Fenway or somewhere else, what happens in the middle of the seventh inning? Everyone stands, and you sing, take me out to the ball game. Every one of you know it. 
When you go to a baseball game, you know that's what you do. At Fenway, they take it one step further, and then, and then the eighth inning, after you sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game, in the eighth inning, they sing Neil Diamond's Sweet Caroline. And you would all know that too, right? You wouldn't have to be told what the words are. You wouldn't have to wonder, what do I do next? We all know when to say, ba, ba, ba. We all know it. And we all know, buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jacks. It's just our culture. It's what we do. We don't have to be told from the smallest to the youngest. The psalm of ascents are like that. The people just know. As they walk, they sing. And they sing, I lift up, I don't know the tune, I wish we had the tune, I wish, I wish the, the, the psalmist would have put notes, like he would have wrote a score for us, right? We would have had the tune of, I lift up my, hill, I lift up my eyes to the hills, from where does my help come? Imagine a throng of people making their way up, singing this song together. Take me out to the ball game, ain't got nothing on Psalm 121. But this is where we find ourselves. This is the scene. This is where it comes into play for us this morning. Step by step, we make our way up the mountain. And the crowd sings along with us the opening lyric. I lift up my eyes to the hills as our eyes are lifted up looking to the temple. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the one who resides in that temple. As I look my eyes, as I peer my gaze up to the top of the mountain and up to this glorious temple where we know that the Lord resides, for this is where He's told us He resides, it's that Lord that we find our help. It's that Lord because He is the Lord who made heaven and earth. And once again, buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jacks. It's got nothing. Although this is a, a very corporate song sung by God's people as they make their way up the temple to worship. As they make their way up to the temple to worship and to sacrifice, it's also an extremely personal song. It's an intimate song. A song that explores and speaks to the very essence of human experience. The human experience that acknowledges the reality that often our feet do slip. Often we are really tired. And many times we're terrified and we're tempted. This psalm then implores us to look to the Lord in all of these situations. There is more to the psalm than just a simple statement of looking to the Lord, however. There is a fundamental and inherent understanding of the person of the Lord, and it allows us to look to Him in all situations. It gives us a peek behind the curtains, if you will. It, it breaks down all the barriers between us and God and reveals the very character of God and, and how He ministers to you. How He loves you. How He cares for you in each and every situation. This psalm tells us in plain language 
this very character of the Lord. It tells us why we look to Him. We look to Him because embedded in this wonderful psalm is a very potent promise. A potent promise of preservation and of care. And the Lord will never leave. He'll never forsake. He will always, always, always be by your side. Or other words, we can say it maybe in this way. A potent promise of keeping. A promise that speaks as much to our fragility as as much as it does speak to the presence and the provision of the Lord. This then is where I want us to land this morning. I want us to land on understanding and seeing just how present the Lord is in your life. Today. Not when it's a tragedy, but in the mundane things. And yes, also the tragedy. But are the things of the everyday. And then what is our response to that faithful promise? So this morning, I want us to look at these few verses, and I want us to look at them in a couple of different ways. And the first thing that this psalm tells us to do is to look to the Lord when, when we're tired. And as we enter into this psalm, there is a sense, an overwhelming sense, that things just are not going well for the psalmist or the congregation that sings these praises. They're longing for something, aren't they? They're, they seem to be missing something. Something's just not quite right in their lives. We wish we had this, or we wish we had that. In verses 3 and 4, the sense of the psalmist is one of exhaustion. You see that there? The psalmist says, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Well, what's the encouragement there? While you're sleeping, he's not. But what also is it saying is that it's recognizing the fragility of who we are as, as created beings that need rest and can't do everything on our own as much as we want to be able to accomplish everything on our own and in our own strength and our own power. We just simply can't. And the Lord knows it. And He says, don't worry. I don't get tired. I'm not moved. The encouragement He finds as He looks up to the hills, to the temple, as He walks, as He talks with those who are also tired, walking up the mountain, as they make their way along a long skinny path up this path to worship the temple, wondering, am I going to slip and cause a domino effect of people to fall down behind me? The Lord won't let your foot be slipped. He won't let your foot be moved because He's not tired. When I was young, one of the things I looked forward to the most in the summertime was, was a summer camp a camp at the area churches that we would join together and we would go up to the mountains in Colorado and we would do the, the necessary things of summer camp, right? Of We would hike and we would shoot bows and arrows and we would shoot rifles and we would go swimming and we would do all kinds of summer camp types of things and it was a really great week. But the, the, the thing that we all looked forward to each and every summer Yes, as much as we all wanted to shoot a gun, we all really couldn't wait for Friday night, the last night of camp, when we went on the midnight hike. Now, it wasn't really midnight, but it was dark. 
But here are a bunch of 10, 12, you know, 13-year-old kids at night on skinny mountain trails winding their way through Colorado mountains with just flashlights. What could go wrong, right? All kinds of things could go wrong, and I don't know if they still do the midnight hike. I actually think that they canceled that for good reasons. However, when I was there, it was a riot. It was a blast. Why? Because you knew at some point in time, at some point in time, somebody (laughs) was going to wipe out. Happened every year, and we all waited for it. Who was it going to be that would wipe out as we stumbled our way up and Usually, if one person wiped out, you know, we're walking single file, and if one wiped out on a dark path, Colorado mountain path, it causes a domino effect, and it was really funny as a 12-year-old kid to watch your friends tumble down the path. But I thought about that this week, and how many times, how often do we feel like we are wandering around this mountain path with nothing but a little flashlight to guide our way? And how often do our feet slip, and maybe we're not bouncing into our friends, but the consequences of what happens when we're tired and exhausted have impacts on our lives. The choices that we make or the choices that we don't make often seem like we made them in the middle of the night with not much illumination. And things tend to fall by the wayside. But then the psalmist says something to you and to me. Because this does happen in our exhaustion. We are tired from the trials and the heartaches of life. And often, too often, we slip. We trip over the things of life and then there is this chain reaction of events. It may not even be a single thing, but multiple things over the course of days or weeks or months or perhaps even years. We don't always make the best choices. In our tired, exhausted lives as we have come to define ourselves in contemporary times where we just go and go and go and go and go and go. We forget about things. I forget about things. I forget, we forget what it means to love others well. We forget about the ones who we love the most to care for them, to cherish them, to give them grace that we've been given. We forget to love our neighbors with the same kind of grace that we've been given. We forget to love our city with the same grace that we've been given. And we just simply try to take care of ourselves. How can I get to tomorrow? How can I make sure that my little bubble of existence is is okay and the waters are steady? How do my feet stay on the path? In verses 3 to 4, the psalmist provides us with a simple reality that we so quickly forget. The reality is that the Lord promises something to you. In the middle of life, in the middle of our exhaustion and our tiredness, and it seems as if we just keep walking along a long, dark path, all by ourselves. The Lord's potent promise to you from these few verses 
is that He won't let your foot be moved. He has you. He's caring for you. The Lord is not tired. The Lord does not sleep. The Lord is not one to slumber in how He loves and cares for you, your family, your friends, this city, this country, this world, and all who make it up. The Lord is not tired in showing grace and mercy to you and to your friends and to your family. Frankly, He's just the opposite. When we are at our worst, the Lord is at His best, right? When we are the most tired, He is the most attentive. And what the psalmist realized and wants each of us to see this morning is that when we find ourselves exhausted and tired, when we are at the point of falling and the chain reaction of life's events is in full effect, turn your gaze to the hills. We turn our sight to the temple, in other words, to the place where the Lord resides. For it is there, and it's there only, where we find the comfort, the comfort and the security to move forward. To place that one foot in front of the next. For it is He that keeps you. It is He alone that watches over your every step. One of the reasons I love this psalm so much is that it's such a comfort to our everyday experience. Each of us knows all too well what it means to be tired, to be exhausted from life. I'm just done. I can't do anymore. I'm, I'm just, I've had it. We know the exasperation of life. But the comfort to me in Psalm 121 and verses 3 and, three and 4 is a very easy and simple elementary statement. He is there. And He'll never stop being there. And so I wonder, where are we looking for rest this morning? Where are we looking to find comfort? Where are we looking to find security or, or relief? So, so join with me. Join with the psalmist and, and, and look to the hills. Look to the temple. Look to the place where the Lord, the Creator of heaven and earth, resides and presides. Look to the Lord. As I've said, this psalm means so much to me. One of the reasons, again, that, that I have such a, a special place in my heart for this psalm is because, as I mentioned at the outset, because of the situations in my life where it's played a, a special role with and for me. It often seems that pastors have two tracks they tend to go down, um, or at least how their ministries are often defined. And to me, as I look at my friends and we have conversations and some of my friends have a ministry defined and identified with lots and lots of marriages and, and, and lots and lots of baptisms and babies and, and new life. And that's wonderful and that's fantastic and it's a joyous occasion. And others, like myself, the Lord has seen fit where I have been by the bedside of many who have taken their last breath. I have performed more funerals than I can count. I don't know why that is. 
But the Lord has seen that that is my ministry, and I'm thankful. I'm just as thankful for that opportunity as I am for my friends who have an opportunity to have weddings once a month. Because this is the path that the Lord has given me, but this then is why Psalm 121 is such a special psalm to me, because each and every time I've sat on the bedside of someone and held their hand, and some of you, yes, even in this church, I have been there with you. I've held the hands of your loved ones. And this psalm has been present. And so it's the experience as much as it is the words. It's in these moments of, of heartache and pain, the undercurrent of the reality of life and death is where this is a balm to our souls. I, I, I have used this psalm, and again, if not every time, nearly every time, I have sat by a saint. However, in those moments, the person to whom I am reading and praying with, most times has no conscious idea that I'm even there. I think they hear. I think they know. But they don't respond. But at the same time, I don't think I've ever been in a room where it's just been me and that person who takes the last breath. That person surrounded by family and friends. And Psalm 121 comforts them far more than it comforts the person lying on the bed. And it's in that moment when although the loved one may or may not be a Christian, and, and, and they may be a Christian and their hope is secure, those that are there are still very present and the, the potent reality is that they will indeed lose a loved one to this life and it is hard. It may be good and it may be right and hope may be secure, but it is hard. And it is difficult. And the tears forever flow. Tears and sobs, embraces are the sounds of the room. And I have shed so many tears in those rooms. And I am thankful for each and every moment. But I would be lying to you if I were to say that those were the most joyous of occasions. Even when the person passing is secure, there is still a moment of terror. Staring death in the face, in the face is not easy. It's really hard. It's really scary. It's terrifying. Because death is not the way it's supposed to be. We're not created to die. And yet, each of us will face this truth. And then we come back to verses 5 and 6. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand, and the sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. He is your keeper. 
He is your shade. The sun shall not harm, nor shall the moon. These verses tend to be the most comforting of them all. The most comforting to those who are terrified. Coupled then with the first two verses, verses 5 and 6 has the psalmist's eyes shift. They shift from eyes of sight. I'm now looking to the temple. I'm looking to the hills. You see these eyes in the way they gaze up. And as we have gone back and imagined that we are looking and gazing at the temple, the, 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 the scene shifts and his eyes now shift not of sight, but the eyes shift to faith. In that moment, those people can't see the temple. But they have faith that the Lord is their keeper. And this is what happens to those in the room every time. The eyes shift from terror. They shift from uncertainty. To see afresh and anew that the Lord is the one that keeps the one passing. Both his or her going out and coming in. He is keeping them as they grieve and as they mourn. Yet this morning, not all of us are mourning. Not all of us are watching a loved one pass into glory. So what do these verses have to say to us this morning? I may not be sitting by your bedside this morning with you or a loved one, but I do know the uncertainty of our souls as broken people. The questions that we ask, because I sit in my office or at a coffee shop with you, asking and answering the same uncertain, terrifying questions of life, of parenting, of growing up, of shepherding, of being shepherded. I know the uncertainty of your souls, the uncertainty of my soul. I know the uncertainty of what it looks like to be a parent. <laughs> and it can be terrifying. To be a student. And it can be terrifying. To be an employer or an employee. It can be terrifying. To find our ways in life can be terrifying. And so this human experience we know together. We know the anxiety and yes, even the fear that is coupled with these things. So allow me, please, to speak into your lives this morning. The counsel that I have from God's Word this morning is simple. And I would say, Christian, or insert your name, or Ryan, the Lord is your keeper. What does it mean that the Lord is my keeper? Insert your name. Ryan, the Lord is your keeper. What does that mean? Again, we understand English language. We understand that word keeper. But is it like a gatekeeper? Like an animal keeper? What, what kind of keeper are they talking about? A jailer? What kind of keeper? Someone to, to pen us in and to make sure we don't go outside the lines or color outside the lines to keep us hemmed in, to make sure that we're on this moral, straight, and narrow path that we never mess up? Is it that kind of keeper? 
This is the kind of keeper that makes sure that we follow every Ten Commandments, and if we don't, then his judgment's going to come pouring in on us? Is it that kind of keeper? How do you think of that when you hear these words, the Lord is your keeper? What does that mean? The Hebrew word, and the connotation that it says here in this verse, is a little bit different. I like war movies. I've already mentioned one miniseries for you this morning. They're not for everybody, but I like them. And there seems to be a trend in contemporary war movies where there's this fascination and there's this um, infatuation with snipers. <laughs> we, we, we hear about them all the time. They're, they're the American Sniper and all of these movies, right? These films, they're glorified and they're all of these things. But there is something about, I think, why we're fascinated with a sniper and his role or her role. Why, why, why are we fascinated with them? Because they sit high atop a perch and no one can see them. What's their primary function? Not simply and only to, to take out the enemy, but it's to cover his buddies, to make sure they don't get hurt, to ward off the enemy, to, to cause the enemy to fear, to make sure that nothing can touch the guys that he is banded with to watch over them, to keep them, to keep them safe, to keep them alive. Now, I know every illustration breaks down, and so don't take it to the very end of the illustration. However, there is a sense in which the Hebrew word is a sentry. Now, in ancient time, a sentry sat on top of a wall and looked out over the landscape, to see if there were any enemies coming. And his job was to make sure the enemy didn't come into the city. And if they posed a threat, he had the right to remove the threat. And so the word actually is sentry, protector, keeper, garter. Not trying to make sure that you don't color outside the lines, but to make sure your foot doesn't slip. To make sure the sun doesn't harm you by day nor the moon by night. To protect you from the enemy. To guard you. To keep you to himself. This is what it means to be the keeper. So as we go through life, we have someone that watches over us and protects us. Christian, Ryan, the Lord is your keeper today. The psalm then closes with the staggering promise that the Lord will preserve the believer. He will preserve the believer from all evil and will sustain the daily goings and comings of their life, both now and forevermore. But I have a question for us this morning. Is that meaning to tell us are we really to believe that no harm will ever become of the believer? Is that what Psalm 121 is saying? Is that, believer, if you have faith in the Lord as your keeper, there's never going to be any harm that comes your way. Well, we know full well that that's just not what it means, right? 
For we can look back on our week this week and we have seen troubles and we have seen trials and we've gone through things, but how often are we attempted to believe that if life is not smooth or it's not perfect, it's not the way that we hope it to be, somehow God fell asleep at the wheel and He's not keeping me, He's not protecting me, and my foot is slipping over and over again and this promise is not true for us. Because He says right here, he, he, no, no evil will come to us. Is that what we're to believe? I would say emphatically, no. I think the way we can understand this text is to bring in another text. To understand this concept of of life that's given to us in Psalm 121, it's it's understood in perhaps the most well-known verse in all of the Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. The Lord's not guaranteeing physical safety, financial success, health, wealth, all of these things. What is He guaranteeing and what is He protecting? Ultimately, it's that sin and death cannot hold you. No evil, ultimate evil, can ultimately take you. The Lord is not guaranteeing things of physical safety, but what He is guaranteeing to you is life everlasting with the Lord God Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth. And so like the promise the, Lord's, the Lord made that's, that the Holy One would not see corruption in Psalm 16, this passage looks forward to something. This passage, Psalm 121, looks forward to something else. We can lift our eyes to the hills of Calvary. We don't have a temple to gaze at but we have a cross to gaze at. To the hill of Calvary where Jesus was pierced and crucified and died. And there are darkest of valleys. It's there where we can rest assured that our greatest threats, death and condemnation, will not touch you. Cannot touch you. And you will be kept from them because they were defeated on the hill of Calvary, on the cross. So when we can truly grasp that nothing in heaven or earth can take away the life we have in Christ, we can then release our grip then on these things that we talked about this morning of trying to preserve ourselves, trying to make sure our our life is, is neat and tidy all of the time, and that we always color in the lines. We can release this self-preservation mode and begin to love and live the way that Christ calls us to. To follow in His footsteps even though we walk through life's paths. This is how goodness and mercy can follow us even though we walk through the valley in the shadow of death. This is why those who lose their life will find it, right? This is what it means that Though we're put to death, not a hair on your head will perish. This is the reason, like Job, we can lift our eyes in worship and declare with Paul that to die is to gain. And to sing along with the reformer Martin Luther, right? And although this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. This is no false assurance. This is our potent promise. 
This is our eternal hope in Christ Jesus. So Christian, believer, lift up your eyes to the hills. Your help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your keeper. He is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is a potent promise. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we give you thanks for this promise that you are our keeper, that you are our God. Lord, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to bolster us, to support us, and to not cause our feet to slip. And so as we go from this place and prepare to take this meal, may you embolden us with your strength, with your comfort, that we can lay down ourselves for your glory. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus, who lives and reigns forever. Amen.